0: Well, good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're continuing our study of Ezra and Nehemiah this morning as we come to the first chapter of Nehemiah. If you're using the Pew Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to page 398 so you can follow along. Now, as we come to Nehemiah 1, I want to begin with just thinking about this question. I'd like you just to imagine and be honest about this when you think about it. What is the first thing that you do when you're faced with an overwhelming challenge? There are several scenarios that could make you feel overwhelmed. Each of us have our own weaknesses and struggles, but maybe you're given a project at work and the expectation is very high and you don't know how it is that you're going to meet these expectations. Maybe there's a test at school and you feel as though your ability to get into your dream college depends upon how you do on this test. Maybe you have a child that just did really well on a test that let them get into their dream college. And the cost of it is more than the cost of your house. And you wonder, how am I going to pay for this? You're given a diagnosis that's going to change your life going forward and you have no idea how you are going to face day-to-day life with this change. Whatever the situation, we all come to... Places in our life where we are out of our depth. The project is too complicated. The test is too challenging. The cost too demanding. The consequences too substantial. So what do you tend to do when you are faced with such an overwhelming task? Today we remember the Reformation of the Church. Which we began with Martin Luther's simple questioning of the selling of indulgences, which were advertised to secure the forgiveness of sin. There was a little advertising jingle that they would use as soon as the coin in the coffer rings the soil soul from purgatory springs. But this simple protest grew. It gained momentum as others began to question many of the practices and doctrines of the medieval church. And within a few short years, Martin Luther went from an unknown Augustinian monk in the provincial German town of Wittenberg to the leader of an international reform movement which would give birth to the Protestant church. It was never his intent to begin such a movement. He had not planned on defying the Pope or the Holy Roman Emperor, and yet the Lord in His providence set this man at the vanguard of the Protestant Reformation. An overwhelming task, to say the least, one that Luther himself would admit was beyond his ability or his power to direct. He was truly out of his depth. And so what did he do in the face of such an overwhelming task? Well, he writes, upon reflection of this, we accomplished everything through prayer. What has been properly arranged, we kept in order. What had gone amiss, we improved or changed. That which we cannot change and improve, we bear overcoming all trouble and sustaining all by prayer. Against such forces, there is no help but prayer. In our passage for this morning, we meet Nehemiah. The year is 445 B.C. And Nehemiah has remained in exile in Persia. He has not returned to Israel yet. He's serving, as we will see, as the cupbearer of the emperor. And yet, his heart is for his Jewish brethren who have returned to Jerusalem to rebuild what had been destroyed over a century ago. In verse 3, he receives a report concerning the work of the returned exiles and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In verse 3, we read The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. At these words, a great burden is placed upon Nehemiah. He's hundreds of miles away. He's essentially a slave in the service to the Persian emperor. There's nothing that he can do from a human perspective to enact change. And yet he knows that he must do something. He cannot ignore the plight of God's kingdom on earth. And so we read in verse 4 of our text, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. As soon as he heard, the first thing that he did was to go to the Lord in prayer. Because he is weak because he is unable to accomplish anything towards the restoration of God's kingdom in his own power, he gives himself to prayer. And what we will learn this Reformation Sunday is that if we would see the flourishing of God's kingdom in our generation. We too, like Nehemiah, must see our weakness, our inability to accomplish anything of eternal significance, and we must pray first. The work that is before our generation is overwhelming. It appears that all the inertia of our society is irresistibly being pulled down towards perdition. That all morality has been abandoned. All beauty corrupted. All ties of fidelity broken. All truth denied. And in the wake of this infidelity is left only chaos. And yet, we are not so unique as we might imagine. Yes, we are out of our depth. And yet, the core need of our generation is the same as each that has gone before us. The Gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus. The reformation of the human heart, which inevitably leads to the reformation of the church and the changing of the world. You see, the task of reformation, the task of bringing great revival and change is beyond human abilities. And therefore, we too, like Nehemiah and like Luther and like all faithful servants who have gone before us must first see our weakness and sin. And therefore, go to the Sovereign and Merciful Lord in prayer. So hear now. The Word of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments and to the prayer of Your servants who delight to fear Your name and give success to Your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the King. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let us go to Him in prayer. O God, we come to You now and we pray that You would guide us by Your Word and Spirit, that in the light of Your Word we may see light, and in Your truth that we might find freedom, and that in Your will we might discover Your peace that is offered to us freely through Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we do pray. Amen. When it comes to feeling overwhelmed, the way that I respond is self-reliance. You see, one of the hardest things for me to do is to ask for help when I'm feeling overwhelmed. I hate the very idea of being a burden to someone or inconveniencing them. And maybe even more than that, I hate the idea that I'm not strong enough to handle my own business. This is illustrated that one summer several years back when I was living in South Carolina, my plate was very full to say the least. I had to travel a lot that, that summer. I was taking doctoral classes. I had a large family and of course I had my full-time pastorate. And so April suggested that we might ask the neighbor if he would be willing to mow our lawn for a couple of dollars a few times throughout the summer. A reasonable suggestion, since the grass was already foot tall and I was out of town for two weeks. (laughs) Nevertheless, I was not going to have my neighbor come over and mow my lawn. I would rather the kids get lost in the Amazon forest that our yard was becoming instead of asking our neighbor to help out. And so instead of receiving the help that I needed, I just allowed the grass to continue to get out of control. And many of us operate in this manner, right? We would rather suffer and allow those around us to suffer than to ask for help. We are too proud to admit that we are beyond our abilities. And so we press on. And yet... We cannot take such an approach when it comes to the work of the kingdom. Rather, we must be a people who see our weakness even as Nehemiah saw his weakness and be willing to call out for help to the one who can. Look down at verses 5-6 through and we see how Nehemiah calls out to the Lord. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. You see, if we would see God's kingdom advance in our lives, in our families, in our church and beyond, we must begin with prayer because our God is a great and awesome God. That is to say that our God is powerful and faithful and hears our prayers and is willing to accomplish all that we ask Him. Nehemiah begins his prayer by offering praise and worship to God even as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer that we approach the Lord saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. That is, Your name be glorified. So too does Nehemiah begin by proclaiming the holiness and the power of God. When we are overwhelmed and out of our death, we must go to God first because He is a great and awesome and powerful God. The Lord is strong and mighty. He does whatever He pleases. And there is none who can stay His hand. When you go to the Lord in prayer, you're going to the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe. You're going to the One who has the power and the ability to do whatever you ask of Him. There is nothing that is beyond His limits. And of all people, we of the Reformed heritage who proclaim the sovereignty of God over all things, we should be a people who are constant in prayer for there is nothing that is impossible with our God. Not only that, We see that God has power, but He also has a desire to answer the prayers of His people. Nehemiah says that God keeps covenant and steadfast love. These two phrases point to God's promise-keeping relationship with His people. That is, that He has made promises that He will bless His people, that He will build His kingdom, that He will return His people from exile and will reestablish them. And it is His will to keep these promises to His people. And third, we see that God will hear our prayers. His eyes and His ears, as it were, are open to us. He's not too busy with other needs. He is not too distracted with other pursuits. When His children come to Him in prayer, He gives His full attention to their prayers. He's not looking at His phone. He's not trying to finish an email. He's not distracted by thinking about weekend plans as I am so often guilty of doing when my children come to me. No, when we come to the Lord, He sees us, He listens to us, and He understands us. Christian, what more encouragement do you need to pray first? You have the omnipotent God of the universe who desires to keep His promises to bless you. He's ready to attentively listen to your every word. Even as Jesus says, whatever you ask in My name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And yet I know that we don't. I know that you don't. Because I often don't. So often I pray as a last resort. I pray as an afterthought. I pray because I'm supposed to pray as a pastor. I pray because my wife says, you know what, we probably should pray about this. But if I'm being honest, it is not yet the thing that I do first when I'm overwhelmed. And that leads to the second point that we see in Nehemiah's prayer. That is, we must pray first because of our sinfulness. We pray first because of God's power and holiness, and we pray first because of our sinfulness. Martin Luther makes an interesting point when he writes about prayer He says, we pray after all because we are unworthy to pray. That seems like he's contradicting himself. What does he mean we pray because we are unworthy to pray? What he means is what we see in Nehemiah's prayer. We go to God first in prayer because we need to turn from our sinful ways if we are to pursue God's ways, we need to repent of the ways that we have gone against God's law if we would see God's kingdom flourish. Look at verses 6 and 7. There Nehemiah continues this prayer. It says that he is confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against You. Even I and My Father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against You and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that You commanded Your servant Moses. You see, the Word of God is very clear that all of humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet it teaches us even more than that. It teaches us that we're not just sinners because we happen to sin. But rather, it's the other way around. That we sin because we are sinners. Sin is not just incidental to who we are. is not a random occurrence that everyone in this world sins. Everyone in this world sins because everyone was born a sinner. Early in the history of the church, there were those who argued that humans were essentially good in that we have the ability to choose what is right if we are just given the proper instruction, if we are just told what we are supposed to do, given the right set of laws and given the right example, then we would be able to put aside our sin and to follow after the ways of God. This line of teaching was propagated by a man named Pelagius. And his teaching seems to continually find its way back into the church. But the church saw that this was clearly unbiblical. That we are dead in our sin. We're not just sick with sin. We're not just hampered by sin. But we are dead in our sin. Therefore, as Ephesians 2 says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we must pray first. Because by nature we are in conflict with our holy God. And the curse of our rebellion means that we are unworthy to come to the Lord in prayer. And therefore we must pray first. We must pray first because we must be reconciled unto God before we can seek to see His purposes accomplished in this world. We must turn from our own broken purposes and sinful desires. We must turn from our works as a means of accomplishing God's work. Because even all of our righteous deeds, all that we think that we are trying to do for God's kingdom are like filthy rags. Without repentance, we are working contrary to God's kingdom. No matter how much we think that we are doing it for God, we are doing it for ourselves if we do it without repentance. And therefore, we must begin with prayer. For we are full of brokenness and sin. And if we do not turn from that sin, it will affect everything that we will do. It will infect all of our actions and cause them to come to nothing but failure and chaos. You see, we must pray first because in our sin, we are unworthy to pray. And this truth leads to the final reason that we must pray first. Namely, because God is merciful. Again, Ephesians 2 frames this dynamic well. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. You see, we pray first because our God is merciful. We do not pray to earn God's favor. We do not pray to earn His forgiveness. Rather, we pray because our holy and powerful God gives us grace as sinners to come before Him through His Son, Christ Jesus. Nehemiah continues his prayer in verses 8 and 9. And here we are reminded of the Lord's promise that if His people will repent of their sin, that He would indeed bring them back from exile and reestablish them in Israel. He had made this promise to His people. And then in verse 10, this prayer continues. They are Your servants and Your people whom You have redeemed by Your great power in your strong hands. In his prayer, Nehemiah declares his confidence that God will move to rebuild His kingdom, to bring vitality and health to Jerusalem because God has redeemed this people. The word redeemed literally means to buy something back. It's to purchase something with a price. Nehemiah is saying that God, because You have purchased this people to be Your own, listen to their prayer. Throughout the Old Testament, the major event that displayed God's redemption, His buying of Israel, was the exodus from Egypt in which the Lord brought the people of Israel out of slavery. He bought them out of slavery from Egypt through the purchase price of the Passover lamb. And yet this redemption of Israel was just a foretaste of the final and full redemption of God's people through the offering of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Lord Jesus went to the cross to buy His people out of their slavery to their sin, By His blood. That they might belong to Him. That we might be His servants. Even as the Apostle Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And that is why we must begin with prayer. Because all the work of the kingdom is accomplished by God's mercy and not by our work. People are saved from their sin not by their works, not by works of the law, but by the grace of God alone. The church will grow and flourish not by our efforts and strategies, but by God's power alone. We will grow in personal holiness. Our families will grow in peace and love. Our community will flourish and prosper. Our nation will experience reviving and reformation. And the world will see the establishment of God's heavenly kingdom. Not when we get our to-do list accomplished, but when we realize that we are weak and God is almighty. When we admit that we are sinners, but that He has shown us grace and mercy in Christ Jesus, and therefore we go to Him in prayer first, that God alone would receive the glory. You see, this is the truth that drove the reformation of the church in the 16th century That God saves sinners by His grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is why we must pray first. Because if we go to our works, if we go to our efforts, if we go to our knowledge and our skill and our work, then we get the glory for what is accomplished. But God will not share His glory with anyone. God alone receives the glory when we begin with prayer. This past week, I was doing a little research for the tour of the church that we gave for the fall festival. For those of you who didn't know, during our fall festival, we gave a little tour of the church. It was like a little historical tour and showed people different places. And uh, in, in the building and I was reading up, buffing up on my Rivermont history and I ran across a lecture that was given in 2010 by Pastor Lowell Sykes. Pastor Sykes is pastor emeritus here at Rivermont and he served as the senior pastor of Rivermont from 1974 to 1999. And as many of you know, Rivermont experienced great growth and vitality under his ministry. And yet, for the first five years, this was not the case. He wrote concerning this time, as far as I could see, little of eternal significance was happening. So what changed from the first five years to the rest of his ministry? Why is it that this body experienced such vitality under his ministry? Well, he explains that his wife Barbara encouraged him to attend the Urbana Missions Conference and so they went there together. And there the Lord broke his heart and convicted him of how he was trying to build the church in his own power. He writes, I saw that I had neglected my relationship with God in order to work harder. I felt that I had to turn Rivermont around. I had been straining mightily to pull it off. I had allowed the best thing to fade into the background. I had been distracted from my first love. Christian, have you put off prayer to work harder? To pull it off? Have you been distracted from your first love by the overwhelming demands of this world. When he returned from this conference, Pastor Sykes gave himself to prayer. He preached well over 20 sermons on prayer to the congregation, encouraging them towards prayer. He blocked off full days to study God's Word and to pray. He. He communicates that you need to plan. It won't just happen. Prayer isn't just going to happen or something that you can just stick on to the end. You need to make a plan so that you can pray first. And he learned what the Word of God is teaching us this morning. If we would see a great work of renewal and reformation in our day, then we must pray first. We can't put prayer off until the work is done. We can't fit it in when the time is convenient. If we would see the kingdom of God not merely survive this generation, but thrive and grow in vitality, then we must be a people who pray first. We must be praying in our homes and with our families. We must pray in our worship services. We must pray together on Sunday evenings and Monday mornings. We must fast and pray together on the first Tuesday of each month. Our prayer ministry must expand even beyond these things. When we ponder the challenges of our generation, we can truly become overwhelmed. We can become discouraged. And we can seek to pull it off. But if we would see reformation in our hearts, we must pray first. If we would see Reformation in our homes, we must pray first. If we would see revival and vitality in our church, then we must pray first. If we would see this Rivermont community flourishing with gospel relationships, then we must pray first. The Reformation of the 16th century was a great move of God. But the future of God's kingdom is greater than its past and so today we look back on what god has done for encouragement for a reminder that if we would humble ourselves and pray our powerful and merciful god will hear our prayer and he will truly heal our land in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen Let us go to Him in prayer. O great and powerful God, we come to You now in this time. And we confess, O Lord, that we are unworthy on our own to come to You, and yet we plead the blood of Christ. For we are a people whom You have redeemed, that You have purchased to be Your own. Would You, O God, hear our prayer to bring revival, to bring vitality, to bring a great move of Your Spirit upon our generation that Your name alone might be glorified. We pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen.